0: easter season and here we have a event that correlates with about this time now the theologians have debated when was it that jesus was crucified some say that it was on a friday some say it was on a a thursday i've heard some say that it was on a wednesday the 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 important thing here is he was crucified he did die for your sins, so it really doesn't matter what day he was killed upon. We celebrate Good Friday, and that works for me. But this is just hours, a matter of mom- not moments, but a matter of hours before he is to be crucified. Now the last couple of chapters, we've got a lot of rich teaching from the Lord as he's training his disciples in the final, final lessons that he thinks is necessary. And so we've had some rich instruction from that, but in actuality it's only encompassed the last few chapters just a matter of hours it was earlier in the scriptures and the gospel that we saw the triumphal entry of the lord this is that day that the sacrificial lamb was to be brought in it's what we just celebrated we call it palm sunday it's a week the sunday before uh the crucifixion and that lamb That lamb was designed to be brought in. It was a lamb without spot. It it was perfect in so many ways. And you see the pictures of the cute little lambs and that was intentional by the Lord so that you would see the innocence of it all. These lambs would be brought in and you would have that lamb for four days and you would develop a relationship with that. And then you would slit its throat and brutally kill it. You would butcher it. And I meant to say it that way because it was intended that way that you would see that something of such innocence that was so undeserving needed to die because you're a sinner because we're 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 sinners and 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 without the letting of blood there is no covering of sins and it's what the jews have been doing for centuries and you can imagine just the rivers of blood that had to flow from that temple well that's the picture that we have here if you look at verse 1 of chapter 18 it says when Jesus had spoken these words that upper room discourse and all that he had spoken to the disciples it says he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples had entered we know that garden that garden to be the garden of gethsemane the brook Kidron Kidron means gloom And the reason it is called gloom is because, well, if you can kind of just picture. Picture the Mount of Olives over here. Picture the Temple Mount over here, and in between would be a valley. And in the bottom of that valley would be that brook Kadron. Now, from the Temple Mount, it would be the place where you would have the Holy of Holies. It would be the place where the altar is. It's the place where the sacrifice was killed. And they would have a sewer system of some sort that was designed to go out and it dumped into this river of Kedron. Now, as I was talking, I I spoke about this with the children's ministers tonight. And one of them even said, you know, it's not only the sight of the blood, it's probably also the stench, the stench of death. Because we've talked about this before, but there's Jesus Christ. He's entering in on this triumphal entry on that Palm Sunday and it's that day that the lambs were brought in. And so you've got all of these sheep that are about to be sacrificed because of the sins of mankind. And they're going to, that, that blood that is shed from them is going to cover man's sins. But in the middle of it, you have Christ coming in, riding on a donkey, the one, this is the Lamb of God, who is going to take away the sins of the world. This is to be a year like no other year, a Passover like no other Passover and so here's christ you've got this rich typology as he's crossing over this brook this brook that is filled with blood because it's estimated that well this was one of those festivals or feasts that it was required of all men of military age to come and present themselves to jerusalem that's why there's the, the Romans are on such high alert. There's this higher awareness because there's a concentration of an army, if you will, here at least in the Roman mind. But there's these men that have filled the city. They probably, at least some of them, have brought in their wives. It's believed that there was close to 2 million. And if you look at the proportions of a lamb to uh, a amount of people, more than likely somewhere around 200,000 sheep were brought in that day. And can you imagine if somebody told you that you had to kill 200,000 sheep? Think of the production that had to be going on. Thinking of, think of the blood that just had to be, not to be gross, but to be spurting just, just everywhere. And, and again, if you were a priest, I would imagine that was one of your business days of the year, and you had to kind of even dread it you got to go in there and, and you just got blood everywhere it, it, it's a disgusting sight there's the stench of death there's these animal carcasses and just just the whole thing going on and then it all goes down into that drain and it all spills out into that brook kedron now that brook kedron it wasn't just this day because the sacrifice was continually offered so it was constantly filled with blood but here we have the Lamb of God who is taking away the sins of the world. And just think of Christ as he's crossing over that brook. I don't know how big the brook is. I don't know if he jumped across, walked across the bridge. But as he's going across it, you have all that blood. Did I just lose power here? Back on? Okay. Just all that, that blood just being washed away. And now here's the blood that is going to wash away sin. All that other is just going out into the sewer because it couldn't achieve the purpose that we so needed it to, to achieve, to, to take our sins away. It would cover it, but it wouldn't take it away. But now here's Christ. Here's Christ, and he is crossing over. He's crossing over this river of gloom. And he, as he is doing so, he is doing so for the purpose of victory over the sins of man. Now, the writer of Hebrews is writing, we don't know if it's the Apostle Paul. Most people will say it is, we just don't know. He's writing to Jews in Rome. And, and the concern of the writer is, is that the Jews in Rome, he's talking I say Jews, they're Jews, but they're they're born-again believers. But what he's concerned about is, is them going back to Judaism, forsaking the faith. Now he he's presenting the point that Christ is better, Christ is a better sacrifice better high priest, better representation of the tabernacle. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, it says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer the sprinkling the unclean sacrifices for the purifying of the flesh how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot without sin to god cleanse your conscience from dead works and serve the living god and what he's trying to make that point is look how deep this goes Because with the sacrifice that covered your sin, conscience was still there. Because as long as sin exists, the conscience is always tapping you on the shoulder and reminding you of the person that you are. That you hope that, well, it's been covered and nobody finds it, but you never know when it's going to be uncovered. So there's just that knowledge that my sin is still out there. But with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, this, this better blood. It it has washed our sins away. That regardless of what you have done in your life, if you have submitted your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you don't have to worry about it. Your conscience should be at peace. It should be quieted. Never again do you have to deal with those sins of the past. They've been washed away, set apart. Now this is in the mind, hopefully it's in your mindset, but this is in the mindset of God, cast away as far as the east is from the west. This is the supernatural power of God that has forgiven you so that he has chosen to remember your sins no more. And if God has chosen to remember your sins no more, what right do you have to remember them? What right do you have to continue to dwell upon them? We need to release them. We need to let them go. Now this garden that he was going to, we know to be the garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane, that term Gethsemane means oil press. Is a garden, more than likely it was an olive grove. Again, <clears throat> it's on the Mount of Olives, this, this, this mount, but it's really a hill that goes up the side. Jesus has crossed over and he's gone up there. When we were in Israel, the bus stopped at the top, they dropped us off and we walked down the path and we went into what, uh, the place that is believed to be the Garden of Gethsemane. And as we were in there, it's, it's got a garden of, of olive trees. The oldest olive tree that is there, um, from what I remember, is dated at 700 B.C. Pretty old tree, but the idea was that this had always been that. And so this was a place that the Lord had gone to be alone, and this was a place that we know that as he prayed, he prayed with all of his heart and all of his might. And really what we're seeing here is, is a tale of two gardens, you need to look at the Garden of Gethsemane and what's going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. It, it, you know, th- this would be the night. It's just before the crucifixion of Christ. Around this time, give or take hours, this would be the time when Christ is in there in their praying. And, and really you see that contrast between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane and understanding the magnitude of what is occurring here. These parallels between two gardens and and really the two different atoms as jesus and the adam of genesis are referred to in first corinthians 15 45 it says and so it is written the first adam became a living being and the last adam jesus christ became a life-giving spirit just keep in mind adam adam is translated in the hebrew as man so the first man would be adam this last man the last man that matters is the lord jesus christ the garden of eden it was created to be pure it's where man had fellowship with God. I, I just really appreciate that, um, that one statement, that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. I can just see that as being intimate fellowship. My wife and I, when we go on walks, it's kind of a neat time just to go walk through the neighborhood and have that fellowship. It was a place of light, but the problem with the Garden of Eden, it also stood, as we read about it in Genesis, right on the cusp of sin darkness was about to enter in and separation between god and man no longer would they have that at least until christ that fellowship that they had but now we're on the cusp of something quite different at the garden of gethsemane especially can you imagine if you were there throughout all of the ages looking down upon that garden but now here at this moment something profound is about to happen as christ came entering into that garden It's a place that existed in the midst of sin, in the midst of darkness, and in the midst of separation, but now it's on the cusp of purity. It's on the cusp of restoration. It's on the cusp of fellowship being opened between God and man again as the light now has entered into that garden. Has anybody here read the book A Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens? I think I've read it twice. I read it in high school. What do you mean? Did you sleep through it? But it starts out with, in the famous lines, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity; It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going directly to heaven, we were all going directly the other way. They wouldn't say hell back in those days. And so you have this contrast between, again, Gethsemane and this contrast between Eden. It was the best of times, and there's, there, there's change that is going on here. There's transition that is about to change the course of history. That is undeniable. That was what was pretty cool about the movie that we watched last Sunday night, God's Not Dead too. And speaking of the times when Christ came and the reality of it, that maybe you believe in Christ, maybe you don't, but you have to believe that when he did come, things changed. And so as things change, we see the magnitude that they did and we see the power that was behind them. And the proof is in the history books that it is undeniable. In the Garden of Eden, everything contrary to God was about to begin, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, everything that would deliver man is about to happen. Christ is there in that garden, and it's through Christ entering into that garden that's going to make all the difference, just as surely as Adam was in that one garden, and it made all the difference. In Edom, it was called paradise, but in Gethsemane, we see misery. In Edom, man was scamming with Satan. Here we have Christ seeking the Father. Eden, we saw sin in Gethsemane. We see the advent of redemption. and Eden, he was there during the cool of the day. Here, it's nighttime. Eden, Adam, because of his sin, he hid from God. Jesus is about to boldly go forward. And Eden, the father sought after man. Adam, where are you? Here in Gethsemane, we have the Lord seeking after the Father. In Eden, death came about because of the flesh, but in Gethsemane, life came because of the Spirit. And so we have these stark contrasts that have made all the difference. Made all the difference in humanity and that's great to talk about and it's definitely an argument but the really important thing that hits home is the difference that was made in your life. And it should be a difference that you celebrate, you recognize and celebrate every day of this great work that God is doing. In one garden, man took the fruit that which was known to be, well, God told him not to, that day he would surely die, but it was so attractive and it was tempting and he gave into it. And the other one, it was the fruit of the cup. It was unknown as Jesus was about to take sin upon himself for the very first time. It definitely was not easy as it troubled the heart of the Lord, but from it, instead of death coming, now sprung forth life to all of humanity, of those who had believed, and those who will believe. And again, it's undeniable that something rich, that something, something that was changed the course of human history occurred that night. Turn over to Luke chapter 22, verse 39. We have a little bit more detail of a picture as far as the events that led up to the coming of Judas and the contingency from the temple and the Romans. Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Luke chapter 22 verse 39, coming out, coming out of the, uh, of, of Jerusalem, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, so this was something that he would do quite regularly, possibly every night, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, it's interesting when he says the place, so it wasn't just Gethsemane, it was a place in Gethsemane, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now again, this isn't Christ having doubts. But, but think how you are in a difficult situation As you're going through an extreme trial, you understand the benefits. We understand theologically the benefits of the trials that we go through. It's what James is talking about in his first chapter. But it's not something that we're looking forward to going into. Matter of fact, the majority of my trials, if not all the trials, Lord, if I can kind of not have to deal with this, I'm good with that. If I can grow in my Christian life apart from these trials, then Lord, enable me in that. And that's what Jesus is saying. And again, it's not about the beatings and it's not about the scourgings and it's not about the crucifixion itself. It's about taking the sin upon himself. And you can never get past that. This is divine God in all of his purity that is about to take not his own sin, not just a few sins, but he's about to take the weight of all the sins that have ever been committed and ever will be committed. In essence, what he's doing is he's taking the sinful nature of man upon his back, upon himself, because again, no man, of, of all of the people that ever existed, nobody would be able to stand underneath that weight. We, we collapse under the weight of our own sin, let alone trying to carry somebody else's sin. But here's Christ in that garden, and that's what was upon his mind, because that was what was before him. Remember, this is the plan of God since the foundation of, since before creation. As God knew that this day was coming, Christ knew this day was coming. Christ knew what was going to occur that day, and so here you have these two opposites, God in his purity and sin that is about to be placed upon him, and it's that which grieves the heart of the Lord. Verse 41, actually down to verse 42, saying, Father, if it is your will take this cup away from me nevertheless not my will but yours be done then an angel appeared to him from heaven strengthening him and being in agony now he was strengthened but he's still in agony no pain has been inflicted upon him he just knows and understands what's about to happen and being in agony he prayed more earnestly than his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground then he rose up from prayer And had come to his disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. It's interesting that Christ was the one who was prepared. They were ill-prepared and they even failed. And so in Jesus' prayer, at least in this occurrence, we see... Over in verse 40, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. What Christ is doing, even during this time of his great trials, he's encouraging these people. He wants to see us emerge victorious in our Christian lives. And so what does he say? Here's Christ, understanding the trials coming, wants to see us victorious, and what does he say to do? Pray. Pray. Uh, How how prepared are you for the next trial that's coming upon you? See, I I get to be the pastor and I get to talk to you rather than myself. But I need to ask myself as well. How prepared are we for the next trial? The only way that you're going to be prepared for the next trial that comes upon your life, and guess what? The next trial's coming. And everybody sitting here, sooner or later, the great trial of death is going to come as well. Because we're all, uh, barring the rapture, we're all going to die and so how prepared are you for the next trial the only way that you'll be prepared according to what christ is saying here is is to pray it's what jesus did before it's what god did just before sin was placed upon him and it's what he encouraged others to do as well because just as surely as we see the advent of despair despair that christ never fell into but nonetheless you see the apostles who are on the cusp of despair as well and jesus just simply says to pray secondly in verse 41 and when he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, he knelt down and prayed. He humbled himself. He put himself in the position that has a great picture within our minds to bow down, to humbly come before the one, and to intercede on our own behalf, and maybe even on behalf of the others as we did at the beginning of church, but come to that place of humbling ourselves before the one who is able to deliver us, from that trial or at least to get us into that trial through that trial and through to the other side verse 42 saying father if it is your will take this cup away from me nevertheless not my will but yours be done what he's doing here is he's seeking the will of the father he's presenting his will and there's nothing wrong with presenting your will as long as ultimately you submit yourself to the will of the father and that's a hard one because man when i go to prayer I always feel that, I don't always feel, but every so often I need to give God some instruction. And as all that does is is prolongs everything and makes everything even so much more difficult. It's all about submitting ourselves to his will. And you know what? Sometimes, even as Christ spoke these words, and I'm not attaching this to Christ, but as I speak the words, sometimes even as I speak them, I realize the foolishness of what my will is, or maybe the self-centeredness of what my will is. And it's only then after I speak them, then that I can be open to the will of the Father. Verse 43, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. It doesn't say that he delivered him. It doesn't say that he made the situation go away. What did he do? He strengthened him for the purpose of the trial. And I can do all things through christ who strengthens me and that's i I, i'll never forget this it was on a i was driving by it was a catholic church and you know how a lot of churches have back then they had these um, monument signs out front and they would have little sayings on them and one of the sayings says lord don't lighten my load but give me a stronger back and and, and just that for some reason just always stayed with me now as far as salvation that was the load that i needed to be relieved of but as far as the the cross that i need to take up daily lord give me the ability not just to endure my trials but to flourish in the midst of my trials to be able to exhibit faith in you that it's you knowing that it's you who has led me in the trial and it's you who will lead me through and out of the trial to truly grasp onto these things. I mentioned this a while ago, I think, that my wife was talking and she said, I wish we would have learned to enjoy our trials more than what we did. I'm just thinking I can come up with a few more if you want to have a good time, but um, there's some that I don't know if I would want to go back through, but then I start thinking about that and I start thinking of the value of those trials. And I start looking back and see the work that God did in those trials and how could i possibly desire for them to go away lord I, I, I too wish that you would enable me to endure but also to enjoy and what i mean by joy to count them all joy that's what james said because i understand lord that you're doing a work in the midst of that trial and then verse 44 and being in agony he prayed more earnestly than his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground looking at that let me ask you this have you ever prayed with passion that's the standard right there not that you've ever prayed to have blood drip down from your forehead or whatever but that's the standard that's the passion to which christ prayed for i mean how many times do we throw up a flare prayer or an sos prayer and think that we prayed when in actuality you just spoke some words out into the air rather than approach the holy god our holy god and and here we have christ who's completely focused and he's given his all into prayer how often do you give of your all into speaking to god we have that opportunity how much more so should we embrace it verses 45 and 46 when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples he found them sleeping from sorrow Then he had said to them, why do you sleep? Rise up and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The general habit of the church should be, but is to not, shouldn't be, but it is to not pray. How many times have we entered into battle ill-prepared? How many times has the trial come upon us and we were just not ready? It, It just kind of blindsided us. And so, that would just lend towards what the apostle paul has told us to pray without ceasing so that we would be prepared for every difficult thing that enters in look at our society it's filled with trials joe man was born to trials as surely as sparks fly upward it's going to happen they're definitely coming how prepared are we back to john chapter 18 being as we've only done one verse verse 2 And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus was attacked many times in his ministry. The devil, religious leaders, unbelievers, but unfortunately here we see the most effective attack that can happen is from within. The people that have done the most damage in our church not that it's been that much damage done to our church but it has always been from within the worst and the hardest trials and attacks come from that place now in the bible there are two men who are described as the son of perdition or men of perdition perdition means waste the first one is the antichrist judas is the other judas this man who lived the past three years give or take with the lord jesus christ listened to the greatest teachings that were ever given on the face of the earth, the most spiritual-filled instruction that anybody is ever able to have, sold it all for a few pieces of silver. Never penetrated his heart. Went into his ears, but never penetrated his heart. Judas, we know that name means praise, and we can connect it with worship. In Matthew's Gospel, we see that Judas betrayed Jesus Christ with a kiss, And it wasn't just a single kiss. He continuously kissed his face. And the idea here is, is he who is worshiping, but he's not worshiping with his heart. He's a false worshiper. That worship is just waste. It's waste of no spiritual benefit. We have in Judas here the epitome of every false believer that had that outward appearance of being spiritual, but in actuality was truly playing the hypocrite. He had a false affection for Christ. And we see that Jesus said in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Here he had the words of Jesus, but there was no effect. Later Paul would write in 2 Timothy 3.7 that these types of people are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Judas was concerned only about his own needs and his trading the spiritual things for the things of the world. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 22, now he who receives seed amongst the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the world, I'm sorry, the word, and he becomes unfruitful. Who are the others that are accompanying Judas? Well, in Luke 22, 52, we're told that some were the officers of the temple. These were the temple guards. These were the high priests, police, if you will. They were the ones who guarded the temple. The Gentiles were not allowed to enter into the temple, so they were the ones that made sure that Gentiles weren't entering in, women or even men weren't entering into the place, that only priests were able to enter in, and really the high priests of the day kind of made up their own little goon squad out of these guys, if you will. These would be the religious police. Verse 3 tells us that there were Roman soldiers, a detachment. A detachment is believed to be close to up to 600 people, 600 men. Why would that be necessary? Well, they're doing it at night. They're resting at night because, keep in mind what's going on. These people were just yelling, Hosanna, here's going to be our Savior. They have the improper perspective of who Jesus is, but they thought he was going to deliver them from Roman occupation. But now, here's the Romans and they're arresting him well keep in mind there's about two million men of military age in that area and this would be just a perfect catalyst for an uprising and so they're wanting to keep it quiet and they want to keep it efficient so they send enough troops there in order to see it come to pass so just in case of trouble they have the necessary means to see that things would come to pass as they desire verse four jesus therefore knowing all things that would come upon him went forward and said to them who are you seeking notice he went forward when he saw them coming he didn't wait for them the lord's understanding okay it starts now here's the plan here we go and so he's ready for it instead of running instead of doing nothing he's proactive in what he needs to be proactive in verses five through six they answered him jesus of nazareth and jesus said to them i am he and Judas had betrayed him, also stood with him. Now, when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. When he says, I am he, I am, it, there's a pulling back of the veil of Jesus' humanness and is revealing his glory, his, his godliness here. He's displayed that he's just so much more than just a man what we see here is displayed his power over his enemies but also his willingness to go to that cross now when it says that they stepped back they fell back and then they fell down i've heard it described as stepping back and then falling backwards but that's not what i see when man comes before a holy god especially if his divinity is being revealed i am what is happening is, yeah, they're stepping back because the scriptures say that, but if you would look in a Greek lexicon and, and look up the word when it says they drew back and they fell to the ground, they fell to the ground, the, the, the verbiage lends towards they fell upon their face. When you see mankind coming before a holy God, he steps back, but he falls on his face. And, and even the devil recognizes the majesty of God. Even this son of waste understands who it is, who he has approached. And again, just through that I am, it's as if just that, that, that that's just even so much small picture of God was released and it was too much for them to endure for a moment. And really what that shows me is, is that Christ is being submitted to what is about to happen. Because if there's just a little bit that is released through those simple two words that would cause them to fall on their face, he could have wiped them all out right there. But that's not his reasons, that's not his purposes. I remember my wife, this is before we were saved many years ago, we were watching the movie Jesus of Nazareth. And I remember when Christ was upon the cross. And they did a good job in presenting him in all of his innocence. And there's something about it in, that strikes you when you see somebody innocent being punished for something they ought not to have done. And I kind of had the mindset of Peter. got to stop this. If I was there, I would have told them and the mindset is to stop it but you can't stop it because if anybody could stop it we'd still be dead in our sins and our trespasses enter peter verse seven then he asked them again whom are you seeking and they said jesus of nazareth jesus answered i have told you that i am he therefore if you seek me let these go their way the the rest of the apostles that the saying might be fulfilled when he spoke of those whom you gave me i have lost none then simon peter in the gospels nothing good starts with and then simon peter then simon peter having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear and the servant's name was malchus so jesus said to peter put your sword into the sheath shall i not drink the cup which my father has given me Most of you are fairly close to my age. Most of you know Barney Fife, right? Remember Andy's burden with Barney? Barney always insisted on carrying a gun. Now usually Andy would not let Barney put bullets in the gun because he was afraid what he was going to do. Well, that's the picture that I have with Simon Peter here. You know, oh great, he's got the sword. And he takes out the sword, and the idea is, is that if Peter is truly right-handed and the ear that he cut off Malchus, it would mean he cut off his right ear, Malchus would have to be turned his back to him. And so Peter stuck him in the back, if you were, cut his ear off in the back, from the back. He wasn't very brave, and I would imagine Peter is just acting out of just not knowing what to do, but thinking something has to be done. And really what you do, as you see here, is... is is here we have the salvation plan of god being enacted and if you inst- if you instill man into that it just messes it all up and the worst thing that he does is malchus being an unbeliever at this point the worst thing that we can do is to cut somebody's ear off through our actions because if malchus does not have an ear then he does not have an ear to hear what the spirit has to say to them how many times have we closed somebody's ear because of some stupid foolish thing that we have done stepping aside or stepping out apart from the will of christ peter should have known because christ told them that this was going to happen see peter's perspective he's thinking that well this is peter's plan for god's salvation but Peter's plans for God's salvation is coming in stark contrast for God's plan for man's salvation. God does not need to be saved. We saw that back in verses 5 and 6. Peter's real problem, Peter's real problem is he doesn't understand what was in that cup that Jesus was talking about in the garden of Gethsemane. This is something that nobody can drink of but the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something that it was obvious that the Father the Father desired for his son to drink of because if Peter would try to drink of that cup of judgment he would have died for all of eternity Christ died but he was rose again from the dead he rose again from the dead so that he would be the first fruits of so many more to come and that's where the rub is for all of humanity what cup do you drink from do you drink from the Lord's cup of salvation Or do you drink from the cup of judgment. And that's the dividing line. To drink is is to consume and have these things become part of you. Has salvation become part of you? We'll be celebrating the meal tomorrow night. Or has judgment become part of who you are? It's a decision that all make. If you confess the Lord Jesus with all of your heart, if you believe in that heart, that God raised him from the dead, then you've drank from that cup of salvation. But to refuse these things, as Judas even did, that's a drink of the cup of judgment. And we see, going back to what I I spoke of the first, the blood of Christ and how it has cleared our conscience. Well, you have the blood of Christ, but through unbelief with Judas, he couldn't live with his conscience. Remember what happened to him? He committed suicide. He couldn't live with the blood of Christ. Why? Because he did not receive the blood of Christ on god's terms he received it from his own on his own terms and in actuality he drank that cup of judgment father once again we just thank you lord that you have given us this word and you have spelled these things out very clearly and father as we are headed into these final days of this season lord in which we celebrate your death and your resurrection i pray once again that we would rejoice i pray father that we would back up and remember these series that we've been going through we've been working towards this for a couple of months now and we've been looking at the details of the cross the conversation that lord you had with your father as we saw in psalm 22 we saw lord that you are able to be our savior because although you died upon the cross you did not stay dead that you you now live and then we saw how you ascended and that you sit at the right hand of the father but you've also ascended into our lives lord and you live there forever to make intercession and as that proof of our salvation. We saw, Lord, that we were forgiven upon the cross and the necessity for us to forgive. We saw justification and what it means to be justified, to be seen, just as if we have never sinned. And then last week, as we saw the fulfillment of the Scriptures, Lord, and that description of the one who came into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, And Father, as we prepare our hearts now to look at Christ upon the cross, the ultimate expression of the love of God, as we look at that empty tomb, the proof of all that had happened, I pray, Father, that you would strengthen our souls for this day. And so, Father, again, we thank you that you have laid all this out for us. I pray that we would be receptive of it, and that, Father, we would sleep well with a clear conscience tonight based upon all that you have done, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? Tomorrow night, we are going to be celebrating Good Friday. And what we're going to do tomorrow night, a little bit different than we've done in the past, I'm not going to have a formal Seder meal here, but I'm going to go through in detail the Seder. The Seder, Seder means process, and really it's the Passover meal. And we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at the significance of it, or at least the fulfillment of it, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll be celebrating communion tomorrow. And then Easter Sunday's a-coming. So keep it up in prayer. We have some young actors that are going to be ministering to, that, ministering to us that day. We're going to be having um, extended worship. I'll be giving a message. And right now I'm giving a different message for both uh, morning services. And then um, we've mailed out flyers to the community. And we, prayerfully, people have invited people. And let's just see what the Lord wants to do and just pray for the salvation of people who are here and see that great work and just rejoice in God's goodness. God bless you guys.